Hi and welcome to the Homeopathy Health Show. I'm Atik Ahmad Bhatti, a fourth generation homeopath with over 25 years of professional experience and practice in this field of healing. The Homeopathy Health Show is the online voice of homeopathy around the world, promoting and raising awareness of this truly unique system of healing, which is suitable for all ages, young and old. Every week I invite guests from the world of homeopathy to come and share their experiences, their work, offer insights and essentially talk all things homeopathy. Why not visit www.liketreatslike.co.uk and click on the radio and podcast button to listen to the latest episodes. So let's begin today's show here on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. I'm uh, delighted to welcome my guest today on the Homeopathy Health Show podcast, and that is Dr. Vijay Vaishnav, who is an uh, MD in homeopathy and is currently based in California in the US. Uh, Vijay, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, and how are you? Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm doing very well. Great. That's that's good to know. And I know you're very, very busy as well, like us all, I suppose. It's uh, strange, isn't it? Uh, life seems to be passing by so quick. Right? Oh, yes. <laughs> I was uh, your, I must say that your biography that you so kindly shared is very, very impressive. And there are, there's so much to talk to you about. I mean, you have 38 years of, of practice, and that in itself is so commendable. But I wanted to start with asking you what led you to homeopathy? What was your journey and your take on homeopathy? Uh, so actually, I came into homeopathy by accident. Uh, this was not really uh, something that I had planned to do. Uh, like most other kids in India, at, during my time as a student, uh, you either wanted to be a doctor or an engineer. My grandfather was... Uh, the physician to the royal family in Gujarat, and he was an eye specialist. <clears throat> so my dad uh, also wanted to be a doctor, but uh, due to some financial constraints, he had to drop out and he had to take care of his mother because my grandfather died when he was seven years old. So uh, that always was something that my dad wanted to be. And uh, I'd heard a lot about my grandfather and how he used to treat patients and how, in fact, uh, there's a very uh, funny story about how he was the first person to buy a car in in that uh, small uh, kingdom. He was uh, a doctor in a uh, town called Butch in Kutch in uh, Gujarat. And when he bought the car, the, the king summoned him and told him, you cannot have a car. You have to sell it because I don't have a car. And if you have a car, it's below my dignity to be in uh, the king of this small uh, principality. So he was a very successful uh, doctor. And uh, I think that possibly was the reason why I wanted to be a doctor. Unfortunately, I just missed getting into the regular uh, conventional medicine college, what is known as the MBBS course in India, by one mark. And uh, I had been taking homeopathy as a, as a, as a patient from a, a local doctor, 
my grandmother had had some major health issues and she was brought back from the door of death with homeopathic medicines but that's all i knew about homeopathy and when i was looking around deciding what to do next and how i could become a doctor someone suggested that there's a college in uh, the neighboring uh, suburb where i was living and i could i could go and apply there and i was on the top in the merit list there so i just got in and uh, that's how i started my journey into homeopathy so it was actually by accident it was not really something that i planned to do but then once i got in i really enjoyed what i was doing and i realized that every every patient that comes to you is a challenge and every patient is different not like in conventional medicine where you just give the same set of painkillers or antibiotics or anti-inflammatories so this was a big challenge and it was interesting because you see all sorts of different uh, types of patients chronic as well as acute and uh, my interest kept growing to the point that after i graduated i was asked to join the college as a teacher and uh, i continued being a teacher for almost uh, 25 years then so that in short is how i got into homeopathy that's a, a very um interesting story indeed and uh, you know i was actually going I, as you were saying that i was just thinking that you know there's a time and place for everything and and every homeopath that i've spoken to and i've spoken to thousands now mm-hmm. you know for the podcast or off the podcast or just as friends right. or colleagues mm-hmm. they all have this beautiful story that you know almost is like they were at the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time you know mm-hmm. uh, and it, and it's it's really fascinating and and again your story is is quite is very very inspiring indeed and i was just thinking as you were saying that and i shared this with somebody else recently that in places like india and pakistan for example where homeopathy is quite the norm as in mm-hmm. wherever you go people know what homeopathy is they talk homeopathy they go to the store and they buy homeopathic medicines mm-hmm. and there's so much research being done it's an absolutely phenomenal place to actually learn homeopathy because the sheer number of patients that you <clears throat> see as a doctor in india or, or or other similar countries is is just surpasses anything else in in western countries doesn't it I mean, there's actually fifty, sixty patients a day, can't you? I agree. I agree with you because uh, in my outpatient clinic in in the hospital where I was teaching, in two hours I used to see about fifty patients. Hmm. And my wife, who uh, was the head of the OBGYN department, she's a she's a homeopath. She used to see around eighty to ninety patients in those two hours in the outpatient clinic there. While in the U.S., when we first came in here. and when we talked about this to the other homeopaths they said we would be burnt out if we just saw more than maybe 10 patients a day so so that's the difference i mean you you end up seeing so many patients that your experience just goes uh, beyond imagination you you learn a lot from your patients from this journey you actually were very fortunate and blessed to be a professor and head of the materia medica at cmp homeopathic college 
And this is the college which is based in Mumbai in India. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit more about, you know, what was involved there and how many students were there, the, the practices that were taking place at that time? So uh, the annual intake of students in this college is 100. And uh, at any given time, uh, there are at least around uh, 400 students in, in the different classes. We have the first year, the second year, the third and the fourth year. So on an average, there are at least 400 to 450 students who are attending college. And uh, in my lifetime there, I must have uh, trained over two and a half thousand students or more maybe as, as a full-time teacher. And uh, the curriculum is exactly similar to what a regular uh, doctor uh, would go through. So you have uh, anatomy and physiology and the preclinical subjects, then you have uh, pathology, forensic medicine, and then the subjects of uh, medicine, internal medicine, gynecology, surgery. And on top of that, you're also taught the homeopathic subjects of homeopathic pharmacy, the philosophy, materia medica, repertory. So uh, it's a very intensive uh, course and uh, it's spread over four and a half years. And at the end of four and a half years, you have to also do a compulsory uh, one year uh, internship in the hospital. So you actually get hands-on training from the second year onwards as a student, because you start attending the wards in the outpatient clinic. But in the final year after you graduated, you are still supposed to do one year's internship where you actually hone in on your skills and you learn to handle patients on your own. So it is a very uh, grueling uh, time if you really take your life seriously there. And when you come out from this college, you usually would be a very skilled uh, homeopath because you've seen uh, some really good uh, practitioners practicing and teaching you. And uh, you also have sometimes other well-known homeopaths coming in and uh, teaching at seminars or workshops. So you, you end up learning quite a lot. And uh, depending on what your interest is, then you finally decide how you want to practice. So I, I started uh, as a demonstrator and then gradually went in to be a lecturer. And then the hierarchies, you become an assistant professor and then finally a professor. So over those 25 years, I started as a, the junior most at the bottom of the rung and gradually uh, climbed up as my experience uh, in homeopathy, teaching as well as seeing patients increased. So it's been, it's, it was a great journey because uh, when I was a student, we had some very good teachers and some not so good teachers. And I had decided that if ever I become a teacher, I want to make sure that none of my students miss out on good uh, homeopathy and they get abundance of knowledge. So I used to go out of my way to teach. And I think that helped because students realized that uh, they would, they can always count on me to give them a lot of information and help, not just with academics, but life in general. So it was uh, good knowing so many students who still remember me 
after so many years. You do you miss those days? Uh not completely. <laughs> uh teaching teaching is my passion. So I used to love to teach. And even at the end of maybe 20 years or 25 years of teaching before every lecture I used to uh open up at least 25 to 30 reference books to prepare for my lecture. Even if I've taught it the previous term I would still like to Uh, sit down and uh, go through all the possible literature because I want to make sure that nothing is missed out. And I've always found that because of your experience in treating treating patients, the next time you open up any of your books of Materia Medica and you open a drug and you start reading it, you find a symptom that you never read before or you never knew before. And that's because you just treated someone maybe a year ago or six months ago or a week ago, and that symptom now matches. So every time you open the Materia Medica, even though you might claim to be the expert, you'll always find something new, which you had missed. So it's 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 a it's a journey, and as uh, it is said, teaching is the best form of learning. So it's a good learning for any teacher. When whenever you start teaching, you you keep endlessly learning something from what you're giving to your students. You know, there's something very profound with what what you were saying, um, which is to do with symptoms. And sometimes you read something new in a materia medica, which perhaps one hadn't uh, paid attention to. Mm-hmm. But you know, going back to the writers or the compilers of these materia medica, let's let's talk Hahnemann and Clark and Kent and Allen and and Boyrucki and so forth and and so many more. You know, mm-hmm. but I'm just astounded that. how much detail and you're not talking 20th century you know a 21st century rather you know you're talking 20th 20th century and the amount of detail and i mean it's mind boggling isn't it that somebody would sit and dedicate and give the minutest symptom and and sorry let me rephrase to to jot down or write down the minutest symptom which was you know mm-hmm. repeatedly observed or witnessed and it's just incredible isn't it how much work has actually gone into these materia medica that we, we open the book and we think well, whichever one we're using and it's like okay this is the remedy and these are the mm-hmm. keynotes and you know mind body abdomen whatever it is and generalities and but <clears throat> somebody actually had to go through that line by line by line perhaps not in the format we're used to of course but you know certainly they jotted everything down and what a skill I, i'm just I, i mean wow you know and and they didn't have computers to help them mm, that's so all the testing and everything was done manually and that's that's a lot of lot of effort and lot of dedication it's incredible isn't it really is yeah, something because I, i think i think they were the real uh, pioneers of homeopathy and what we get now is just old wine in new bottles so everything that you want to know about homeopathy that people talk about now is actually already been talked about it's just that it's been rebranded and uh, given to you in a different way that's an interesting take on it actually which now leads me on to uh, from from the actual college you are involved or were involved should i say uh, because you're now based in california but you were involved in um 
looking at new concepts for Materia Medica. <clears throat> and from there, uh, something I'm very interested to actually ask you is this new model of approach that you've come up with, which is very unique to the study of homeopathic therapeutics. Do do share your your wisdom with us. Uh, you know what these approaches are and and the concepts as far as materia medica study. So uh, basically, uh, I'm sure all all those who have been to a homeopathy school have been told that homeopathy is a science as well as an art, and it's always been very difficult for us to prove the scientific part of homeopathy. Uh, so. I had the advantage of uh, also being assigned to attend the uh, the wards and the outpatient department of one of the largest uh, allopathic hospitals in uh, Mumbai, the KEM hospital, which is a teaching hospital. So I was with the head of the department for almost two years in that in that department, and I was attending everything. I used to attend emergencies at night. I used to assist in uh, a lot of uh, procedures. Uh, the aim was to uh, train me to finally be able to teach uh, homeopathic medicine in an integrated way, where you teach the students not just homeopathic therapeutics, but also uh, how to use the knowledge of internal medicine and clinical medicine in their practice. And <clears throat> that has been uh, the basic idea which I like to put forward to my students when I teach them, whether it's Materia Medica or whether it is therapeutics. Because uh, we, for example, if you read Boger's uh, Synoptic Key, he talks about locations <clears throat> and he talks about uh, modalities and then, then you have the small description of the remedy. So locations basically is sphere of action. And every drug has a sphere of action. What you need to study in a material medica is <clears throat> the sphere of action and the pathogenesis. Now, pathogenesis is what does that remedy do to that one particular part? How does it uh, bring about changes there? And as a result of those changes, what symptoms develop? So it makes it easy for you to understand the material medica instead of memorizing it. So, for example, let's take uh, a rare remedy like millifolium. I'm just taking one out of the, uh, just as an example. Hmm. So, the symptoms of millifolium are you get uh, hemorrhages, which are bright red. And from the slightest injury, they tap their hand against something and there might be a spot of bleeding under the skin. Or someone touches the nose and they start bleeding. But it's a passive hemorrhage. It's bright red. And from the slightest uh, injury or slightest misstep. Now, if you look at the sphere of action of millifolium, uh, that we have homeopathic remedies that either, like aconite, works on arteries. Its, it's sphere of action is it causes congestion and inflammation of arteries. We have drugs that act on veins, like pulsatilla or carbovich. While in the case of millifolium, it's neither the artery nor the vein; it is the capillary. And what does it do? So the sphere of action is capillaries. What does it do to the capillaries? It makes them very fragile. They break easily. And so that's the reason why the slightest injury misstep causes them to bleed. 
Now, because it's a capillary bleeding, it's never going to be gushing like belladonna, nor is it going to be dark like carbovage or lachesis. It is bright red, but it is easy gush. And because it's uh, something that might, he might not even notice because he's walking about, you don't even have the anxiety that you get with hemorrhages like in case of aconite. So I'm, this is the way I also help uh, them understand how to differentiate remedies. So while I was talking about millifolium, I talked about aconite, I talked about belladonna, carbovage, and of course, in a classroom setting, it is much more detailed. I, we, then we would go into the different features of each of those remedies and how they produce the hemorrhage. So even a small remedy like millifolium, you can uh, understand the sphere of action, the pathogenesis, and the guiding symptoms. You can take mercury, morxol, or you can take pulsatilla, for example, which is a, a very common remedy. Everyone knows about it. So sometimes it's possible for and why pulsatilla? Because it's a venous remedy compared to millifolium, which is a remedy that acts on capillaries. So the, the important guiding symptoms of pulsatilla are worse uh, in the evening, worse in a warm room, better in the open air, better by slow, gentle motion. How do we translate this and how do we understand this? Because it is easy to memorize for some people. Some people cannot memorize it and then they end up making mistakes uh, when in the examination and actually when they're seeing a patient. So the sphere of action of uh, this remedy is the right side of the heart and the veins, not the capillaries. So the veins actually continue into the right uh, atrium and then the right ventricle. So the right side of the heart is what is usually affected in uh, pulsatilla. Pulsatilla also has anemia. So there's a lot of uh, chlorosis and anemia as a part of this remedy. And you find that because of the fact that they have anemia and anemia means they have a poor oxygen carrying capacity, the blood is usually shunted to the vital organs. And you find that uh, as long as they are perfectly warm and covered, they feel good. <clears throat> I'm sorry, as, soon as, as long as they are outside in the open air, they feel good. As, as soon as they come into the room, as when, or when they are overheated, the symptoms get worse because all the shunting of the blood from the vital organs comes back to the skin and the person starts feeling a discomfort because the, the vital organs don't have the blood. The same with uh, the fact that because the heart is not pumping as well and the veins are weak, the calf muscles are what helps to pump the blood and, and help with the circulation of blood in the veins. So if the person walks about, there's a good pumping action on, and that helps to bring about a proper circulation of blood and the patient starts feeling better when she walks. And that too, when she walks gently, if she walks or she exercises, there's a weakness of the heart and she will feel out of breath. So it's possible for you to understand the remedy and that makes it easy to differentiate remedies too. Now, for example, CPR. CPR is a drug which is always better by exercising, better by dancing. They like to exercise, they like to dance because it seems to help them. Why? Why is what we ask? That's what I ask the students to ask me or ask any other teacher of material medical, why is this symptom there? Why is it so peculiar? 
So in sepia, for example, there's a lot of uh, congestion in the pelvic organs at the expense of blood being in the vital organs. So there's a lot of pelvic congestion. They have a fullness in the lower abdomen. They have a feeling as if the uterus is being pushed out because of this congestion. And when they start exercising, when they run or when they dance or when they do any sort of aerobic exercise, there's a redistribution of blood because blood is now required in the, in the muscles, in the extremities. This redistribution reduces the congestion that she felt in the pelvic region. And it seems to go back to the lungs, to the heart and everywhere else. And she starts feeling better. So sphere of action, pathogenesis and the guiding symptoms. That's how you study your homeopathic remedy. Now, the same thing applies in the study of therapeutics. Usually what happens is uh, you pick up any book of uh, therapeutics, for example, Dewey's uh, therapeutics or Lilienthal's therapeutics. You have the name of the disease and the list of remedies from A to Z. And the symptoms are listed there. Uh, my approach is <clears throat> how about trying to correlate the constitution, the pathology and the miasm and then study your uh, therapeutics. For example, if you take the locomotor system, the patient comes with rheumatism, for example, or joint complaints. When will you prescribe a particular remedy? For me, I would look at it from mainly the constitutional point of view, see which uh, whether this person has the soric miasm, which is prominent, the psychotic miasm is prominent. Is it the tubercular miasm or is it the syphilitic miasm? I'm just talking about the fundamental miasms, not the new ones that have been added recently. Hmm. But I'm looking at just what was contemporary at Honeyman's time and after Honeyman. So, for example, a person comes with uh, joint pains and you think he's in or she's in the soric phase, then I would think of either calcarea carb or lycopodium or sulfur. Now, if it's calcarea carb, the soric manifestation could be just the obesity causing joint affections, or it could be some amount of calcium uh, metabolism. If it's calcium metabolism, then maybe calcarea fos if there's osteoporosis, and calcarea floor if there is osteoarthritis or there are bony growths, or calcarea hypophosphorica if there is some abscess. Now, calcarea, lycosulfur also uh, form a cyclical relationship. And when you study calcarea carb, you would look at also uh, endocrinal problems, thyroid disease causing obesity. Calcarea carb is a good remedy for thyroid disease. So you try to correlate the pathology, the miasm, and the remedy, and try to understand the remedy from in total, not just the symptoms, don't just memorize the symptoms of the drug, but try to understand its practical application in your, in your patient. If it's lycopodium, we all know that there's a 4 to 8 PM aggravation, there's a right-sidedness of the remedy, but that's, that's just uh, basic materia medica. Where is it useful? So if you look at the sphere of action and the pathogenesis, you're taught about the uric acid diathesis. That means this drug would also be useful for gout. Also for patients who have other places where there might be uh, stone formation, like gallbladder stones, kidney stones, 
So if you have a patient with multiple metabolic problems with the uric acid diathesis, you would think of lycopodium as a remedy. And then you look at the acutes of lycopodium. Maybe the person in the acute state might need a drug like urtica urex, or you, they might need benzoic acid, or they might need ruta, which are again of the same uric acid diathesis. So while you are studying the material medica or the therapeutics, you don't just study the drug and uh, from A to Z, but understand the remedy. What does it do there? What is the, what is the pathology? Which myosin is very prominent? If it's this uh, psychotic myosin, I would think of Netrum self, Thuja, and Causticum as a central remedies. Teach those and then expand upon it. Between uh, <clears throat> Thuja, Netrum self, and Causticum, you have one very important differentiation that Causticum is better in damp wet, while the other two are worse in damp wet. So people who get joint pains, which are worse in, uh, in the damp, rainy season, then natrum self and tuja might be thought of. But if they're better in the damp wet, wet, I would think of causticum. However, causticum goes one step further and, and there are ankylosis of joints. So it would also be useful for rheumatoid arthritis, not just simple arthritis. And you try to then understand other remedies which could be useful with causticum for rheumatoid arthritis. If it's the syphilitic miasm, where there's destruction, you would think of iodatum. You could think of asafetida, where there is destruction of the bones, destruction of the joints, and orometallicum, for example. So the thing is, instead of learning it from A to Z, try to understand and try to form an idea about what is the pathogenesis in the remedy, does it fit with the pathology that you're looking at? And what is the miasm? Because if you give a drug based on the wrong miasm, it's not going to really be very useful. So everything should be right. And everything should fit like uh, pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. And that gives you the ideal response that you, you expect in your patients. Uh, this is something that people don't talk about. But it's always good to correlate uh, medicine surgery, gynecology, and pathology with homeopathy because uh, that makes it easy for you to look at each patient. It makes it easy for you to talk to somebody else from the uh, conventional field of medicine and also makes it easy for them to understand what you're doing and, and give them results and show them how the pathology has changed. It's it's almost medical homeopathy, isn't it? You could call it medical. Uh, it's homeopathy. yes, yeah. and it's a, and homeopathy is a, is one of the systems of medicine. It's not it's not uh, uh, something that is out of uh, you know some some focus focus that is being done. So you need to you need to see that it gets its right place in uh, medicine. And and we mustn't forget that. The, even the founder of homeopathy himself was a medical doctor. Oh yes, uh, as were so many others after him. Nearly all of mm -hmm. them, one may say, you know. And uh, you know that's that's something not to forget that they had medical knowledge. So perhaps you know that was their way of being so detailed as far as the analysis for <clears throat> right. for material medical is concerned, and the remedies and the 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 the, the 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 signatures of the pictures of the remedies, because they had this medical aptitude and training behind them 
Right. And they will perhaps, I know we moved on, of course, in leaps and bounds, medicine has, of course, which is amazing. But, you know, in those days, as it was medicine, but they were still looking at organs and, and, and body and um, oh, yeah. and blood flow. And, and certainly those things were there, you know, they, they were aware of those. And even before the microscope, they were able to predict that there could be microorganisms mm. that are associated with diseases. Not They may not be the cause of disease like modern medicine believes, but at least they thought that there is some association between the microorganisms. Maybe they came in later as scavengers, but uh, at least that was something that they could even perceive and think about in those days. That's. Uh, I, I hope that you are running some type of... Uh training classes um is that something you're actually doing with um with what where you are at the moment in no, no i don't really California have the time now. right now no. that's that is my aim and i do teach at different conferences and sometimes i get called to teach for some of the uh, institutions in india so that either i if i'm there it's in person otherwise it's all through zoom ah the blessings of zoom hey eh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Now, you know, with this approach to the study of homeopathic therapeutics, which, you know, is is amazing, uh, you've just shared with us. Coupled with that, you have, of course, 38 years of clinical practice. Mm-hmm. So what changes have you seen as far as, well, I suppose as far as homeopathy and and and, and how it's, how it was and how it is and the increase perhaps of, of use of homeopathy. What's, what are your sort of insights in, into that? What's over 38 years, a very, very long time and a very, uh, must be a, have, must have been an amazing time. And you must have seen so many changes take place. Yeah. So uh, I think in India where it was almost mainstream, especially in large cities uh, like Mumbai, where there's a lot of awareness and a high literacy rate. People are more aware of homeopathy. So I don't think there's been a major change as such because it always was uh, well accepted. Though, of course, uh, I think many of the uh, local insurance companies there do uh, reimburse for homeopathy, which is a great thing. And uh, there have been lots of changes in the laws that have made it very clear. It was a, always a gray area earlier, and now it's very clear that homeopaths are at par with the doctors who have had their MBBS or the MD, and they have the same rights as those doctors as far as uh, certifying uh, health, certifying death, or giving other uh, certificates for the uh, issuance of passports and licenses, driving licenses, etc. But there's been a definite uh, change in the attitude, thanks to even uh, changes made by the government. And uh, that is reflected all the way down. So there are lots of primary health care centers that have opened up where they uh, actually look for homeopaths to join. That, that is a, that's a great uh, change that you see, at least in India. In the US, I think over the, over the last 12 years that I've been here, uh, it is uh, quickly catching up. We all know about the history of homeopathy in the early 1900s where it was flourishing at one time and then thanks to the Flexner Report and the uh, 
different uh, pharmaceutical lobbies, it had to, to take a back seat, but it's coming back again. And we have lots of uh, different uh, well-known homeopaths. There are lots of new provings being done. There are some very good researchers in homeopathy in the US. And uh, it's, it's good to see that there's a resurgence. What, what's your experience? I mean, you, like you said, you've been in uh, the US now for 12 years. So mm-hmm. um, how, how is it? Uh, do, are people at that stage where they, whether, irrespective of whether they use homeopathy or not, but are they aware that there is this, uh, you know, there is another system of medicine that's called homeopathy? Yes. And this is more so on the Western part of the US and maybe the East Coast, where, uh, again, there's the, the population is more cosmopolitan. Population is more so-called international, where you have lots of people from other countries, mainly on the East and the West Coast. And they are they have been aware of homeopathy and they they seek homeopathy. So uh, we are in California, which is on the west coast. All the states here, right from uh, Washington State and uh, Oregon, uh, California, and also to some extent Nevada, you have a lot of uh, homeopathic uh, practitioners. There are lots of homeopathy schools. There are naturopathy colleges which are accredited by the U.S. government, which teaches uh, homeopathy. And you can actually major in homeopathy in the last two years. And though you're a naturopath, you can still come out as a homeopathic specialist and you can graduate as one. So there have been lots of changes. When I first came in here in the year 1992 as, as a tourist, there were a handful of homeopaths in California and uh, not much was going on. But then the in, in California, for example, the Senate passed a bill which allowed a patient to choose what sort of treatment he wants. And it also allowed alternative uh, therapy practitioners to be able to set up practice uh, as long as they conform to certain codes and ethics and guidelines that were set up. But it has made it easier for uh, homeopaths, uh, Ayurvedic doctors, uh, acupuncturists to practice and give the best to their clients in California. And I think most of the other states on the West Coast have their own corresponding such uh, bills that help them practice. That's very inspiring to know, and also the fact that people do have a choice, and uh, that—that's actually, I mean, that—that's the best part of all of this. That mm-hmm. uh, it's you're, you're able to flourish, just like we've mentioned with great detail about how homeopathy is seen in India. Or, or should I rephrase? You know, it's medicine, and then there's Ayurvedic medicine, and there's other medicines and mm-hmm. homeopathy, and everything is is almost in parallel. So the respect is there, the use is there, the awareness is there. And right. uh, that's a good thing. And if that, that continues in, in the US, I think, further afield, it's only a good thing. It's good to be aware. And we actually have, it's surprising, but we have the regular practitioners referring their patients to us. So we have, there's a psychiatrist who has been sending all her patients to us because she wants to help us taper off those medicines. So when we start the constitutional remedy for 
those uh, psychiatric case, cases, whether that's depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, uh, over a period of time, she then starts tapering off the, the conventional psychiatric remedy, the drugs, to a point where they are on very low dose of those medicines and they remain on homeopathy. So there are, and there are some uh, other physicians, skin doctors who have been sending their patients to us. It's just, I think some patient improves and talks to them about it and then they are open to it. That's, that's the best part of it. They're open to homeopathy. They're willing to give a try, which was not so about maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, that's that's really, really good to know, actually. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm really happy about that, actually. I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast is, is going to have the same feeling as me. And I think uh, the other thing that uh, homeopathy is uh, does is it makes the patient or the client feel that someone is listening to them. Most of the time with the, uh, when they go to a physician, they don't have enough time for that because they need to do a lot of paperwork anyway after that. So they give you about 10 or 15 minutes. You got to finish off whatever you have to say, maybe even less time than that. They might do a quick examination and then they send you away. While a homeopath sits with you, talks to you for maybe an hour or so, initially at least, and then every follow-up is at least 30 minutes where they ask a lot of questions and he turns into more of a friend, philosopher and guide for you. And it helps them also unburden themselves. So a lot of the physical symptoms are as a result of a lot of emotional baggages that they're carrying. And if they're able to release some of that and get rid of that because of the homeopathic, the process of homeopathic treatment, it's not just the medicines, but the fact that the physician talks to them or the doctor is giving them time, making them uh, look at themselves from a different point of view. It, it makes a lot of difference. It, it, it is much more fulfilling both to the patient as well as for the practitioner. And, and that's so, that's absolutely true. And it's, it is about listening and the fact that sometimes you just, you know, when they, they, they say, don't they, that uh, a great weight has been lifted off my shoulders, you know, when mm -hmm. you, when you share your trials and tribulations and health concerns and anxieties and worries. And, and of course, that doesn't mean you share them with everybody. Of course not. But as far as a practitioner is concerned, as a homeopath specifically, there's a lot of counseling involved. And, and it's only a good thing because sometimes 50%, like you've quite rightly said, the condition is gone because someone has lifted that burden and almost shed it, mm -hmm. shed it off right. themselves. And, that energy that negative energy is is diffused and and that's so so important because people mm -hmm. are not inclined to to talk about health sometimes and some subjects they feel are very taboo and and to be able to share is is such a such a big part of homeopathy because the practitioner has to know to be able to pinpoint the remedy or remedy right. you know and uh so, in fact, just by the process of homeopathy itself, which is another blessing of homeopathy, you can actually relieve someone's um, the burden that someone's carrying just by the process of going to see a homeopath because of the certain questions they're going to ask. So mm -hmm. it's a win-win situation. Right. It's uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. You'll be surprised to know that we're actually out of time. That really was very inspiring, and it's been an absolute delight to have you. I, I'm really, I have to say this again, but Dr. Vijay Vashnav, um, a real joy and honor to have you on the podcast. And 
And uh, I do hope you'll come back and we can talk maybe in, in more depth on some of the strategies and your methodologies and the protocols that you follow. Sure, yeah. I think there's a lot to talk about. So uh, we can talk about acute prescriptions, chronic prescriptions, some of the uh, conditions where we had miraculous changes seen in the patients and some conditions where the patients were maybe in the last and on their deathbed and how we helped ease them and made them live for a longer time. So there's a lot. Homeopathy has done a lot to our, our patients and it's always good to share so that people can get inspired and uh, maybe also think of practicing much more seriously and uh, without really being affected by what they hear from others about homeopathy. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much once again for giving me this opportunity to speak with you. I do hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of the Homeopathy Health Show. Please do support the show by clicking follow on my socials. Remember, the more exposure the podcast receives, the better for homeopathy around the world. You can find me on Instagram by searching for at like underscore treats like and on both Facebook and TikTok by searching for at like treats like. So let's promote the voice of homeopathy on radio and podcast around the world together. Don't forget to visit me online at www.liketreatslike.co.uk and click on the radio and podcast tab. Here you'll be able to see all the guests that have joined me on the show so far. And of course, you can stream on demand the latest episode to your mobile, tablet or PC. Until next time, stay safe and take care.